One of the things I love about the Bible, reading it, meditating on it, responding to it, teaching from it, is how personal it is. And by the way, that is equally one of the criticisms people have of the Bible. They wish that it read like a straightforward Ikea manual with step-by-step instructions in the same font, same language, same authors, same symbols for the warnings and cautions. But because it's divided into 66 books, written by 40 different authors, including farmers, royalty, a doctor, philosophers, prophets, and an IRS agent, it has two unique qualities about it. Probably more than that, but here's two. One, it produces this remarkable unity out of diversity. With 40 different authors writing over multiple millennia, all of it points to the gospel. All of it, despite the diversity, points to the gospel, the good news about the person and work of Jesus, the rescuer, the work of a savior. So when you pick up the Bible, if you turn somewhere in it, you will find yourself either being prepared for the gospel, as were God's people throughout much of the Old Testament, going through the frustration of sin, unable to follow the law, failing time and again in God's covenant, they are being prepared for a better covenant, a gospel. So so if you open up the Bible, you might find yourself prepared for the gospel, being presented the gospel, or being invited to participate in the gospel. Preparation, presentation, participation, Wherever you open up, God's word produces this unity, this unified purpose out of diversity. But this great diversity and quantity of authors also makes the Bible intensely personal. It's unlikely, but real people, with real sin, real flaws, very much like you and me. And that makes it very personal. And that is exactly what we get from the opening of the Apostle John's letter, an intimately personal invitation that I would summarize like this. We invite you to join us in authentic fellowship. We want to invite you to join us in authentic fellowship. Let's look at this invitation more closely as we begin the letter of 1 John, starting in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And actually, the first four verses of chapter 1 are 12 personal, plural pronouns. For you grammarians out there, that's 12 we's, ours, and us's combined. In other words, This is an ongoing party of people from which is being extended an invitation. The Christian church is already a Mediterranean-wide movement. 
at this point, that even if you reject, it must be accounted for. And what John and the other apostles are saying is that we want you, friend, to leave your solitary life and participate in new life with us. With an us, with a we, with an hour. And then in verse 3, John extends the invitation and he lets us know who is on the VIP guest list. Check it out here in verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with, here it comes, here's the VIP list, with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So John is saying, come be a part of something not only greater than you, but greater than us. Two, not one, but two gods. God the Father, God the Son, and of course, as we know from other parts of Scripture, God the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 4, we discover this fellowship is not only greater than us, it actually lives beyond us. John says, this verse 4, he says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John says our joy is complete because we are writing these things down. You see, John and the other apostles know that as they write, God the Holy Spirit is writing through them his eternal word. As they write a letter, he is writing to them an eternal word for generations, people, groups, nations, kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, still to come. And this brings him joy. So he writes both to a particular group, but he also writes for beyond them. In fact, John envisioned in us what we read last week. In Ephesians chapter 2, connecting back to last week, verses 19 and 20 of Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What is the foundation of apostles and the prophets? What did they both do? They wrote Holy Scripture. And that is the legacy that John is leaving here, knowing it's going to survive well beyond him and beyond us. That brings him a lot of joy. It's also a different kind of invitation here in that John neither issues a sort of direct plea nor does he call so much for a decision. Right? Come on down. But instead he works through sheer attraction. Like someone coming to your door, hunched over, hands on their knees, out of breath, they can barely get out. That, hey man, I, I saw him. I heard him. I, I, I touched the one who is the beginning of life itself. He says this in verse 1, right? And so it makes sense. This is the same apostle who ran to the tomb along with Peter. He got beat out by Peter, but still, you got to give him credit for the run. 
you get the impression that if he could, John is the type of person who would run up in person to tell you hand gestures and all because God showed up in person for him in the person of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. We invite you to join us in authentic fellowship. Now, let me explain the nature of authentic fellowship so that you can locate yourself in it. That's the rest of the letter. John explained the nature of authentic fellowship so that we can locate ourselves in it. And we talk for a few minutes about the rest of the letter, and then we'll stick our big toe in the waters of verses 5 through 10 here. We'll just, All right, the flow of 1 John. John writes his letters a little differently, to the point where basically every commentary admits that piecing together a sort of coherent, you know, flowing outline is difficult, if not impossible. So by way of example, the Apostle Paul, his letters flow in a fairly linear fashion. Boom, boom, boom. Beliefs, values, behavior. So Paul usually starts with what we believe about God. And that flows into what we value, what we prioritize, what we love and cherish about him. And then that dictates our lifestyle, our behavior, how the outworkings of all of that and family life and workplace and Relationships with non-Christians. And that's why I titled our series in Colossians that we did about a year ago, Learning, Loving, Living Christ. First, you learn Christ, the beliefs, what we believe about him, then loving, cherishing, what we value, prioritize, then living Christ out in the real world, our behavior. True not only of Colossians, but of letters like Ephesians and Romans also, we see this kind of linear flow, beliefs, values, behaviors. But John, oh, John, he makes you feel like you're running in circles. He will take you through a theme or topic, and just when you think you're progressing past it, just when you think you've finished talking about brotherly love, he loops you back to take another ride on the merry-go-round. Like, seriously, John, I'm going to throw up on this thing. <laughs> yeah, there's only so many times. I can talk about the spirit of the Antichrist. (laughs) The old joke goes, two Christians were once talking about their pastors. The first one bragged, my pastor is good at foreign languages. He uses Greek a lot. To which the second one replied, oh yeah, my pastor is good at geometry. He talks in circles a lot. Uh, <laughs> now, but seriously, the, the, the best pastors like John do this. They circle back because they remind us of old things more than they teach us new things. In fact, if you ever get a teacher who teaches you too many new things, if you've been in the faith for a while, you've got to start wondering, hmm, is this a new gospel? Interesting. John writes with this parallelism and symmetry typical of a circular style for a reason. For him, the style is a lot like life, a lot like the personal 
growth in the Christian life in two respects. First, like a circle, we are having to learn the same lessons over and over again. Through, of course, the invaluable education in the always highly enrolled School of Hard Knocks. Right, the School of Difficult Experience. God allows us to go through, and then he patiently points to his truth. Sometimes we learn a little more, sometimes we grow, often we have to experience it again, rinse and repeat. But the, the brilliancy of John is that we are actually moving forward as we move in circles. Kind of like a phone cord, like you see here behind me. It is like the, the, um, the insignia, the image we're using for the sermon series, a phone cord. We loop around and around and around, but it progresses. When you stick with Jesus, you will find these distinct times when, although it felt like you had made the same mistakes, the same learned the same truths and the same lessons again and again, you'll have these moments where you're going to look back and see, wow, I've actually grown. I've actually overcome this. I'm even just a, a tiny bit more like Christ. And by the way, we usually don't notice this. It's usually somebody else in the body of Christ who points this out to you. That's the great thing about the body of Christ. Someone put their arm around you saying, yeah, hey, I just want to let you know I've really seen you grow in this area. I mean, I notice you don't struggle with that anymore. Or you don't bring that up much anymore. Seems like you may have overcome it. John writes roundaboutly also because it resembles the day-to-day, week-to-week, season-to-season experience with Jesus. People actually go to John, the Apostle John, and his writings for comfort. For a sense of relief, sense of comfort, sense of assurance, because this is who John is. He was not only the babe of the disciples, but he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Four times he refers to himself this way in his own gospel. A tenderness, a closeness with Jesus. He was part of Jesus' inner circle, along with his brother James and Peter. He reclined closest to Jesus at the dinner table, his head on Jesus' shoulder. When Jesus Christ was dying, He entrusted John to be a good son to his mom and Mary to be a good mom to John. This is kind of who John was. And accordingly, John's someone you want to go to for a little bit of comfort, a little bit of assurance. But equally, equally, it's important to see that because John was so close to this man who is also a holy and perfect God, John received humility. He received more revelation of his spiritual poverty, his neediness. He received more conviction of this inward rebellion and wickedness as he got closer to a holy God in Jesus Christ. That's exactly how John writes his letter about authentic fellowship with Jesus. When you get close to Jesus, sometimes he comforts and assures you that you're his child, that you're loved by him. 
known by him. At other times, when you go to him for comfort, he might instead challenge you and compel you to examine if, in fact, you are in him and, in fact, you know him. Now, his goal is always comfort and assurance because he wants you to be in him and know him. But sometimes he'll challenge you in that, compel you to examine yourself. And that's what he does in this letter. And we will thus be doing that each week as we follow in John's letter. In fact, you can pretty much bank on rotating each Sunday for a while between assurance, comfort one week, examination, challenge the next. All right? But please, you know, because you know that, don't be skipping every other week. <laughs> Just so you can be comforted. Uh, that would sort of miss the point. <laughs> I need to make this disclaimer. Uh, most of you here assume you are part of God's family. And I'm not here to question whether most of you are. So I'll let the Apostle Paul do it for me. <laughs> I, always, I, want to, I always want to delegate the bad cop stuff, right? At the end of his second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul candidly commands that each person, listen to this, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 13, 5. You read that, you see Paul simultaneously offering, offering comfort and challenge in this one verse. Don't you realize Jesus Christ is in you? And then the next breath, unless, of course, you failed to meet the test. You might say, ah, oh, that was a different time, a different era, different people. We're beyond this, are we? Are we more mature? Look, while I love, love, love many qualities and many aspects of the fruit produced by Jesus in Sunrise, Community Church, and I love each of you dear family members who make us up. I love the eagerness to grow in God's Word. Is clearly a theme of what's going on and what the Holy Spirit's doing here. I love the thirst to know him more. The graciousness and patience people show here towards one another. Having said this, mature as a body we are not. Yet. We're getting there, but not yet. And nor am I, by the way, as a young pastor. I still got a long way to go. So we should examine ourselves, test ourselves with God's word. Now, I know even saying this will freak some of you out into manic insecurity. You know, you immediately want to pop a, a spiritual Xanax and <laughs> just thinking about this. And it's coming because think about it. what's the worst that can happen to you? by examining yourself, by testing yourself with God's word. The worst that can happen is that you go from, you know, I declared accepting Jesus into my life a long time ago. I said, you know, hey, I accepted Jesus. I prayed a prayer. I've gone to church for so long. You go from that to, wow, 
I've never trusted my life to Jesus. But I want to today. Yeah, I accepted Jesus into my life, but I've also accepted people into my home. Right? I've prayed a prayer. I've gone to church, but I never really trusted my life to Jesus. But it can today. And that's the great offer. Even if you have a momentary insecurity, even if you have a momentary wondering, that might actually be the Holy Spirit who wants to lead you to trusting him today. Okay, so what we have here is flow from John is circular but progressive, like a phone cord. And the highs of the circle are assurances and comforts, while the bottoms are examinations and challenges. And both God uses to move us along in the Christian life. John starts us at the bottom with an examination and challenge. So let's read verses 5 through 10 for our first examination and challenge. We'll try to spend a little time here. John goes on to say, verses 5 through 10 of chapter 1, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. What I want to get across in these verses, friends, is for us to get content living our lives with the blinds open. Now, I've got a, uh, we have a Venetian blind model here and Elisa Kovac. Thank you, Elisa, for showing blinds that I took from my house. <laughs> well, nice. I hope that whistle was you, Brad. I don't know. I didn't really. I didn't really see you, and it came from your vicinity. Let's just hope so, or else we could be looking at a fist fight in the parking lot later. <laughs> if it's daytime and I walk into my house, I don't like the blinds closed, and, and I, I'm just almost OCD like that. I come in, it's kind of dark. Blinds are all closed. I don't like them closed. I'll, I'll just start opening because there's something to me about light especially natural light. It makes the place feel more pure. It lifts my mood. It's something about a warmth there. I was talking with um, JP and Lisa Wellman, the way she put it the other night when I was asking her about it. She she likes the windows um, open, the blinds open, because it makes her feel more, it feels more clean, she said. I think she's right. There's something almost divine about it. Now, I don't want to press this analogy too far, Because I know closing blinds have good reasons, right? Prevent distraction. Uh, Our kids have uh, blinds next to their desks. It's nice to pull them down so they don't get distracted doing their homework. You know, there's dogs outside, birds, all that stuff. Uh, You don't want to be indiscreet. 
Blinds are nice for that reason. Also, temperature, right, to keep the home cool. I get all that. I get all that. But we have these large panes of windows facing our road outside, which is very near our house. Most of you have been to our home. And every time I pull them down, right, when I close the blinds, I find myself asking the question, why? I ask the question, why, a lot, but this is certainly one case in which I do. So Katie asked me to close the blinds. I remember one case a couple months ago, and I think, why? Well, why do we got to close the blinds? Well, you know, it's night. We're going to watch a movie with Will Ferrell in it. <laughs> I think that's no explanation needed, just mentioning that actor. Um, we didn't screen the movie and didn't look at the preview. We just popped it in. She said, well, you know, this is going to be opened up to the street. We have no idea what's going to be said or shown. The windows are down. Admit that, you know, yeah, it's probably not good. Probably not good to have the blinds open. Blinds are used for secrecy. And I'm going to press this analogy a little further here, though. Often secret shames, right? Secrecy and sleeping. That's the big thing. Blinds are used for when light is a possibility. Every time I shut these blinds, I think, I question, am I ashamed to mix what I publicly proclaim with what I privately live? In fact, I was looking up a history of the Venetian blinds this week. That's what I do as a pastor. This is part of my life. <laughs> and the, the popularization of Venetian blinds seems to have occurred when former Venetian slaves carried these blinds over to France with them. And the slaves brought them so they could finally use their newfound freedom to do as they wished in secret. Interesting. Now, while it's symbolic, my uncomfortable relationship with blinds is probably a good instinct because it's symbolically paralleled in God's word. Listen just to a couple passages here in the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 through 8. Paul says this to this church, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. No, people don't do that, do they? <laughs> but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So again, this theme of living in the light, being associated with awakeness, with sobriety, with alertness, whereas darkness associated with sleep, with drunkenness, with secrecy. Ephesians 5, 7 through 14, kind of similar. Listen to this. Therefore, Paul says, do not associate with them. These are people who don't yet know Jesus and show it obviously with their indulgent actions. For at one time you were there, you were darkness, Paul says. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
where the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. There's that secret theme again. I'm telling you, closing the blinds. <laughs> but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. In fact, I used to use that line on my roommate as a senior in college. He was a, he was a, he slept in a lot, so I just quote scripture to him. Awake, O sleeper. It was like the resurrection of the dead. Shine a little light on him. <laughs> but we see a theme here, don't we? There's this call to live in the light. There's something about your life being open for all to see. This call to live in the light originates in John's first big statement here in verse 5. Let's read it again. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. This is, where, this is how John wants to start. This is his big opening statement. That God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I think John hits it beautifully here. His message must begin here in many ways. In fact, we saw in the video earlier, we saw some moments of how we shared the gospel. We were able to give away the gospel so many times with the help of this amazing tool, this EvangiCube. You can open this little cube and it pictorially and uh, tangibly helps someone begin to understand the good news about Jesus. When I had the privilege of training our folks with it, when Sean asked me to do a training, the one thing I hammered home, besides calling it dynamite because the gospel is the power of God, I called it dynamite, and I encourage people not to repeat that word in the airport with the Angie Cuban hand, you know, <laughs> for obvious reasons. The other thing I hammered home was that the gospel starts with God and that God is light. Look, you can even see this on the first pane, the first opening panel of the Evangelium, that God is portrayed as this brilliant light. His glory, his perfection, his brilliance. And that is attractive to people. So start there. Help people see that God is all of those things, things we want. People want to participate in glory. They want perfection. They want to be around brilliance. That is all of who God is in perfection. Those things are attractive, but they also show how incompatible we are with God because of sin. Right, And that's why the second half of that panel is portrayed as a person in darkness. And there's separation because that darkness is incompatible with the brilliance and the gloriousness of God. Now, one natural response to this reality is people will try to live incompatibly with one foot in two lives. One foot here, one foot here. 
That's exactly what John is saying is impossible to do and still have fellowship with God, still have fellowship with his church. As we see in verses 6 and 7, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Friends, we cannot be scared to sin with the blinds open and the sun shining. Far better to try to live for Jesus and mess up in public, to mess up in fellowship, to mess up when other people might be looking and trying to live for him privately in seclusion and secret. Does it work? In fact, John says it's not so much that we won't sin. In fact, we will. He says in verse 8 and verse 10, if you, hey, if you say you don't sin, you're deceiving yourself. If you say you don't sin, you're making God out to be a liar. It's not so much not sinning, we're going to sin. It's the private, one foot in two lives kind of sin here. Saying you're walking in the light, when in reality, privately, secretly, you're living a different life. Friends, Do you have authentic fellowship with Jesus? Here are some examination questions to consider. And I just want to encourage you, if any of these questions prick your heart, if they touch a wound, just jot one down to consider now during worship in a minute or later this week. We need to ask these questions. Consider if we really are in Christ, have authentic fellowship with him. First, do you find yourself choosing darkness, shutting the blinds without a second thought? Like that has become your instinct, choosing darkness. Not just you choose it, but it's become instinct in your life. Do you criticize persons, for instance, in conversations, even as you are now doing the same thing in secret? Do you have a secret stash of anything? Especially for those of you who are married. Maybe you have have a roommate, a secret stash of food, of monies, bank accounts, if you're married. Are you pretty convinced it's okay to be one person at work and another person amongst friends? Or one person at home and another person with the church? And you say to yourself, oh, I'm just good at adapting I'm an adapter to different environments. I'm a chameleon. Look, sometimes we're going to be different people around different people. The idea is that you've gone from doing that occasionally to being convinced it's okay. That's when we get into deception. We're in darkness. Is it okay for someone to pick up your iPhone and poke around? Why would that be a problem? Wait. Do you find it incredibly important to try to keep your social world separate? Right? You, you just you get antsy when worlds begin to collide in your life, a different people's. Why? 
That's one set of questions. Here's another set of questions. Uh, do you see the warning signs of darkness in your life? That darkness has crept in. Have you experienced different unrelated persons pointing out something about you that you neither like nor agree with? But they've said it and there's a theme there. You just don't want to hear it. Uh, do you read your Bible regularly to stay exposed to God's giant foam finger pointing out something, a pattern in your life that's got to change? Maybe even the fact that you have been deceived about something or in darkness. Do you find yourself repeating, I haven't found the right church. Man, I just can't find the right community group. I can't find the right area of service. And you're convinced that it's not me, it's them. Again, you might visit a church, community group, you might try to serve. It might not be the right thing, but this keeps happening again and again. That's not me, it's them. Do you mentally or verbally make constant comparisons to others to make you feel better? At least I'm not like Jim. I hope there are no Jims here. I don't think there are. I just have to think about that. Oh, boy. Commentator reading, I was reading, uh, pointed out that uh, the idea of God as light has two main associations in the Bible. One is holiness. That's what we've been talking about, the perfection, the glory, the holiness, the majesty that is light. But two, God is light and also has to do with a rescuing revelation of truth. God proclaims something that saves, and it is a light. It is a revealing of something, a saving act. In fact, two times, John says, there is something in us, or not in us, that we need. And that is the light of God's truth. He says this in verse 8. First, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Also in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. His word is not in us. His word, his truth. That doesn't mean, by the way, if you ever doubt his truth, if you ever question his word, that you are not a Christian. Uh, St. Augustine used to have this famous phrase. He said it in Latin. I'll go ahead and say it in English. To, to believe in order that you might understand. Now, let me break that down. The idea he was talking about is, is remain in the sphere of faith. Remain in fellowship with Christ and with others, even as you have questions and even as you ask them. And that basic faith will help you understand those major questions. But you have to be in the sphere of faith. That will actually help you work out your doubts. Frederick Buechner, a more modern author, put it this way, that doubts are the ants and the pants of faith. They keep faith alive and moving. I like that. And it might be true, but the assumption, even for Buechner here, is that the faith is still real and it's moving. So the question isn't, do you ever doubt or do you ever have questions, but rather, when you do look inward at yourself, is there an increasing solidity of truth that can be built upon? They can be relied upon. When all the emotions are swirling, all the questions of, and the heat of the moment arrives, is there a solidity 
of truth that I can look at and say, yeah. I can rely on the fact that Jesus has died for me. I can rely on the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's in control. This increasing solidity built by God's truth. Some examination questions to consider on this front about authentic faith, authentic fellowship with Jesus. When I do look inward, do I have a few undetermined doubts or do doubts determine my decisions? Are you always just flying about because you don't, you have no belief in anything? Or it's just a few determined doubts? It's an important question to ask to see if maybe you're still in darkness. Do, do I quote sayings, you know, uh, little platitudes from friends, from grandma, from grandpa? Do I quote modern song lyrics? Or do I quote scripture to justify points of views and decisions? The other thing we notice is that the one thing we need inwardly, the one thing we need inside ourselves, truth, is also the one thing we must get from outside ourselves. Dr. Phil ain't right. I was hearing him say the other day, you are your own best friend. Everything you need is within you. It's not true. Even when you recognize you are lost in darkness and sin, you can't find your way out on your own. You need a flashlight. You need a flashlight. You need the light of God's word. The last examination question is this. If you do find yourself stuck, frustrated, lost, and out of fellowship, how? Do you find your way out? How do you find your way out? Most people try to find strength or strategy from within. Most people try to find a strength, try to dig their way out. If they're lost, if they're frustrated, they try to make, up, make it up to other people. They try to make themselves look better. They try to improve themselves. Maybe they go and get another advanced degree. Or people employ a strategy from within, and that is just have one foot and two lives. To look religious, churchy, spiritual on one hand, and live a secret life on the other. The Bible says to use truth from without. While most people try to, try to find strength, strategy from within, the Bible says to use truth from without. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Friends, the central truth of the Bible is this, that Jesus' work on the cross removes the offense of sin to God, removes the offense of sin, and restores us to fellowship with the Heavenly Father. And by the way, here's the awesome part. These are the same external truths mentioned right here by the Apostle John. Verse 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all our sin. And verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge darkness with the blinds open, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Live with the blinds open. While the perfection, the glory, and the everywhereness of God may initially overwhelm you, out there also shines the blood of Christ and a Savior who is faithful and just to forgive. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for revealing yourself as the light of the world in whom there is no darkness. 
And Lord, we thank you for all the ways you have reflected that light in our lives. For other believers, Lord, the church who reflects your light, who has shown us unconditional love and kindness and the brilliance and the gloriousness of what it means to know Jesus. And that may have been when it first attracted us to you. It probably was another person living for you. Thank you for that. And may we be people who continue to reflect you. We thank you for also reflecting your light, Jesus, through your holy word. Thank you for shining it into our hearts. And fathers, we see in First John coming up, we'll see how it shines to comfort and assure us to reveal the truth that we are children of God, that we are heirs to the King, that we are on the right path. On the one hand, but other times like this morning, it will help us cause us to examine and to be challenged. So Father, for many of us here, the questions asked were, were pricks to our hearts or a finger to an open wound, touching a sensitive spot. Father, help us not ignore these questions, but deal with them. Far better, Father, to recognize the truth and respond now that it be too late. Help us, Father. And Lord, I know, I just sense that there's somebody here this morning, Father, who, who knows that they're living with a foot in two different lives, who lives, who recognize they're living in darkness, deceived in some way. These questions are especially hitting hard for them. But they don't want to live that lie any longer. Father, I pray that they wouldn't. I pray that even now, they would decide for the first time to trust their lives to Jesus. That before they had played Christianity, they had played religiosity, they played spirituality, but for now to really trust their life to Jesus Christ and go from the kingdom of darkness into his glorious light, living their life in the open for him. I pray they would take that courageous step and not be afraid. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.